Welcome to the shit show of my 20s. My name's Sophia. I'm a 20-year-old loan officer from California. I started this podcast back in April 2020. Got furloughed from my job for about three months. And during those three months, I was very honest with myself. I was like, we can either start emotionally eating. We can start suppressing these feelings of not feeling worthy because you've lost this thing that you attach so much of your identity to. Or we could start that podcast that you've always been wanting to start. So I decided to go with that second option and I'm so glad I did. I've interviewed over 130 people since then. It's been incredible. I've got to interview music artists and seven-figure entrepreneurs and just all these incredible people with different stories and different ways of how they got to where they are and just hearing about their journey, hearing about their shit show moments because we all have shit show moments and just learning how to navigate them better and learning how to learn from them and take them and create something magical out of them. And I'm so glad that I get to interview all these incredible people and I am such a big believer that you can radically change your life in a year. You can just radically change your circumstances, where you're at. And I remember being 19 and just trying to get a job and applying to like, I was applying to Ross and like a smoothie bar and like all these places wouldn't take me. And I was like, so offended. I was like, why is no one taking me? And then I finally passed my NMLS test. And then I got a job with a major mortgage company. And I was like, oh, that's why they didn't take me. Cause I was meant to go down and get this job instead of that job. And I went from being 19 with $0 in my bank account and just being so stressed about money and so stressed about like is it gonna come into my life do I what am I gonna do about this to being 20 year old with over 60 grand in savings and I think one of the big changes that I made between those two was even when I had zero in the savings account I still believed that I was abundant I still believed that money was gonna flow into my life I still believed in something that I couldn't see at the time because I knew it was just a matter of time before it was gonna come so I'm such a huge believer and you can radically change your scenario you can step into that next version of you and that next version of you that higher self version of you she's not that far away as you think i think she's just there's just garbage in the way and it's just undercovering that garbage that's in the way of you getting to her and just stepping into that and the next version of you with the next level of results it's something i'm super passionate about and i hope from this podcast that you get to hear these stories and relate with these people and just relate with like not necessarily like just reconnecting to that path of what you want to do and reconnecting to that higher version of you and what you wanted to be when you were younger and what lights you up and what brings you joy so i'm so excited for you guys to hear these episodes would love to connect with you on instagram my instagram's the shit show my 20s dm me and love to have a conversation and feel free to share this with someone you know will love it and you can also leave a review on itunes i would love that Today's guest is Eric. I love chatting with him. Eric is a true serial entrepreneur, having started, bought and sold businesses in a diverse collection of industries, including mobile computing, medical simulation, military research, augmented reality gaming, and Hollywood special effects where he worked on Avatar and films in The Terminator, Transformers, Iron Man, and Pirates of the Caribbean franchises. Eric is a professional speaker and phenomenal storyteller. He has spoken in over 25 countries and shared the stage with other great speakers, including Tony Robbins, Jack Canfield, John Gray, Sir Richard Branson, and U.S. President Bill Clinton. In 2018, the Canadian government recognized Eric with a Senate 
150 medal for the work that he has done to improve the quality of other people's lives. We go into so much in this interview from how life is like a game and here is how you play the game of life. What he has learned from Tony Robbins, detaching yourself from your company, leaving a job that doesn't align with your values, how he's been able to cultivate his speaking abilities and become a powerful speaker leveling up and so much more. So excited for you guys to hear this interview. Let's get started. So thank you so much, Eric, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. Love to start. Tell me about your 20s. Feel free to include any shit show moments we might resonate with. Let's start there. Yeah, wow. I had a few sort of very uh, questionable moments in my 20s. I I started my 20s very sick. I I started my 20s unhealthy, overweight, dealing with a bunch of, you know, things that doctors didn't seem to be able to help me with. And that reached a low point in my very early 20s, thankfully, because I was able to turn that around. And and, uh, I I think that had I not done that, the rest of the stuff that happened in my 20s would have been way worse, (laughs) much, much worse. But I think in terms of my, you know, sort of my business life, my... um, I, I, even my business and personal life, like my twenties were very important. And what I mean is that I got my first professional job. You know, I, I didn't have the money to go to university when I left school. So I got my first professional job in my early twenties and I, I worked for this company for seven years. I was the first full-time employee. And the guy that I worked for had what could only be best described as a tenuous relationship with honesty and ethical business dealings. And I was in a tough place because as a kid, I was earning quite a lot of money. And, and, you know, generally speaking, we were running, you know, running a good business, but the way he treated me and other people was really questionable and difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and so at the age of 27, I made the toughest decision ever. And that was to quit that job. And this may not sound like a big deal. People quit job, jobs all the time, but I think I should put in perspective that I had left school without going on to university. So I had no formalized training. I was earning a phenomenal amount of money. I mean, I, I was basically earning six figures all the way through my twenties and six figures back then was a very different thing. You know, I mean, we're talking 30 years ago, right? Yeah. So it was a big deal. And so for me to walk away from that was really scary. And in the end, I, I found myself in a situation where I felt like my soul was worth more than the money. And so I, I made the tough call to leave. But at the same time, and, and this is where it's a bit of a twist to it all, is that my boss did owe me a bunch of money. So I kind of felt like, all right, I've paid off all my debts and my boss owes me like $150,000 or $180,000. So I quit and I've got time to figure out the rest of my life. And you know, I, I just accepted a relocation. So we were in, I was there with my new wife in England, new baby on the way. And then I have to quit my job, but I've got this money coming. So I'm going to be okay. And then he just didn't pay me. And he knew I didn't have the money to sue him. He knew I didn't, you know, I mean, it was just, and there I was in my twenties in a foreign country, baby on the way, no right to work because my right to work was relative to my job. So I couldn't just go get another job. And I was at the bottom. I mean, I was terrified. I I didn't come from money. I didn't come from a wealthy family. I couldn't just call home and go, Hey guys, can you send me money to fly me home? Like I was you know, it was, it was, it was tough. And I think that that probably was one of the most defining moments of my life. And it happened when I was 27 years old. And I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for it today, of course, but boy, was it hard. Mm. And I'd love to go deeper into leaving the job. Like you left the job. You didn't necessarily know what was going to happen next. You just knew like in your soul, like, I can't, I can't stay here. So 
having that moment and going into that moment, were you, did you work on personal development prior or did you know that something was going to come out of it and that something beautiful was going to happen and that even though you don't know what it is, something's going to catch you or was it kind of just a leap of faith for you? Or like if you could walk us more into that. Yeah, you know, I, I would say it's a combination of those things. The, the me of today would love to go back and tell you, oh, yeah, I knew it was going to work out. I didn't worry about a thing. You know, I, I, I knew everything was happening for me. And but the truth of it is, uh, first of all, I may all sound really brave and, and you know, whatever to quit my job and all that kind of stuff and, you know, preserve my, my soul. But the truth is, I did that knowing I had a job offer. So I had a job offer in, in, in Grand Cayman. A friend of mine owned a, an investment firm there that did stock trading offshore and that kind of stuff. And I'd always wanted to live in the Caribbean. And I knew, and I quit knowing I had this, you know, almost $200,000, right? Which mm-hmm. again, this is 1997. So I don't know what $200,000, $1997 is, but probably half a million dollars today, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or in Bitcoin, it's $4 trillion, but that's a whole different thing, right? But mm-hmm. in any event, I, um, so it wasn't that brave of me because I thought I had a path. And, but then you know, so I quit with a feeling that everything was going to be okay. But then in the weeks that followed, as it turned out that my boss wasn't going to pay me and, and I, and I couldn't go get a job and I couldn't accept this job down in Grand Cayman because I didn't have enough money to fly my family there. And, and also it was a commission job. So for a few months, I wouldn't have made any money. I I would have needed training. I needed this money to start this new life. And, and I, so I, I had some very dark moments. I, I, I remember I was living in this little house in a, in a little town called Rington, just outside of Bristol in the United Kingdom and, and in England. And I remember like coming to that house going, I am such a fraud to even have this house. I don't know how I'm going to pay next month's rent. I, I don't know how I'm going to feed my family. My, my, my wife is two months pregnant. So the real mm-hmm. shit's going to hit the fan soon. You know, like I, I really, I really didn't have a great deal of faith for a few days there. It was, it was really tough. And and then, you know, a funny thing happened, you know, you got to just look for signs from the universe sometimes, but an old client of mine called me from my old job and he said, listen, I need to get some equipment. And I said to him, no, I, I, I don't work for the company anymore, so I, I can't help you. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, I called the company and you weren't there and I tracked you down because I don't want to do business with the company. I want to do business with you. And I'm like, I, I'm not in that business anymore. I'm done with mobile computing and barcode scanning and I'm not doing that anymore. It's, I, I, I'm bored of it. I'm done. I'm not doing that anymore. And he goes, okay, look, he goes, I I just need your help. And I go, well, besides which I really feel like I shouldn't be competing against my old boss. Now, I, there was no contractual reason for me not to, Uh, that's a longer story. My boss always tied everybody up with these big non-compete agreements, but for some reason I I wasn't bound by that. So I could have done it, you know, cleanly, but I just felt wrong about it. And then the guy says to me, well, look, you don't need to feel wrong about it because here's the truth of it is we were never going to do business with that company ever again until you took over the account. We weren't doing business with the company. We're doing business with you. And so you're not stealing us away. Please help me with this one project. And so I did. And I thought, you know what? I really don't have any choice anyway. If I can make a little bit of money, it might get me one more month to solve my problem. And so I did this deal with him. And I remember the deal was not big. It was like 10,000 pounds or something like that. But where I would have used to make 1,000 pounds commission on that deal, I made 7,000 pounds because it was my company now. I didn't have a company, but you know what I mean? And all of a sudden I was like, I can do this. I can do this. And, and I think one of the things that it makes me think when I look back on it now is that too often, especially when we're in our 20s, we look at the big mountains we want to climb and we focus on the entire journey. It's like, we, we, you know, I got to tell you, I, 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 like 
somebody like Elon Musk doesn't start like PayPal and SpaceX and Tesla. He doesn't start them all by focusing on every step of the way. You know, he, he may know the end goal that he's trying to get to, and then he has to focus with what's going on right now. And I think very often when we're young, we, we try to look at the whole thing. Like I've climbed Kilimanjaro a bunch of times. And I can tell you, it's a mountain you climb one step at a time. And there's many reasons for that. But here's one. If you took a helicopter up to base camp and then did the last day, you would just get sick. You might even die. You wouldn't make it because you didn't acclimatize. And I think that that's what we sometimes forget in our 20s is that the stuff we're going through, the heartbreaks and the lost jobs and the, 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 the business failures and the different things that we try in our 20s, that's, our 20s are the sandbox for the rest of our life. It's like our opportunity. And the things that hurt us during that time are the level ups for what's going to make things really work. Now, if we're very lucky and we hit a home run in our 20s, well, that's great. But most of us won't. And it's those failures that will lay the groundwork for the real successes that are going to come in our later 20s or our 30s or, and what have you. Mm. And if there is any advice or some sort of wisdom you can give to someone who's maybe in that similar situation as you were, and they're in a job and they don't really agree with the ethics that are the management or they're having some issues, but they don't necessarily have anything else planned or they don't know what else is next for them. If there's any piece of wisdom you could give to them, what would it be? I, I think of it this way. It's funny. I was on Instagram yesterday and I did this silly little fun exercise on an Instagram live. And it, and it goes like this. You write down all the stuff you've ever worried about. All of it. Everything you can remember, write it down. A list of that. I worried about losing this job. I worried about this person dumping me. I worried about leaving this person. I worried about being sick. I worried, you know, I worried about all these things. I worried about COVID-19. I worried about all these things. Then what you do is you cross out all the stuff that you've worried about that never happened. And the truth is, I've done this with many, many people. The exercise generally proves out that it's more than 90% of the stuff that we worry about never actually happens. So we devote a huge amount of our mental focus worrying about shit that's never going to happen. And then we apply a huge amount of, of energy to that and distraction and cortisol and negative stress chemicals. And, and, and you know, because we create the pictures in our head about going wrong. And, and then here's the twist of it. The more you picture it going wrong, the more fearful you are going into the situation, the more likely it is now that you're actually going to make it go wrong. You know, it's like, imagine somebody dating, right? And they, they want to go and ask this girl or this guy out on a date. If they go up there with confidence, there's a much higher chance they're going to get somewhere. If they go up there expecting to get rejected, if they've pictured the rejection and they pictured the hurt and the pain of it, and they walk up with that hurt and pain, that person's going to reject them. They're asking for it, right? Mm -hmm. And so the same with job interviews and, and bank loans and business startups and all that stuff, right? So what I want to suggest is that when you recognize that 90% of the stuff that you ever worried about never happened, then stop worrying about it, right? And, and maybe, maybe, and as we're talking, I, I imagine to people that are trying to navigate their 20s, this is what I would say. Some of you play video games, right? And that's like, that's great. But when you get to the tough part of the video game, do you whine about it? Do you complain about it? Do you stress out about it? Do you go, oh my God, it's the tough part of the game? Or do you go, game on? Because you know that every time you reach the big boss or the bad le or the level up or the next level, it's hard and you probably won't succeed the first time. You know that. But it's by failing the first time that you're going to learn a little bit more to do it the second time and then the third time. And by passing level one, you get all the bonuses and the level ups and the power ups. And by the way, if you ever tried to defeat the level 10 big boss or the level 10, like ultimate part of the game, and you hadn't done one through nine, you wouldn't make it through level 10 anyway. Levels one through nine were just preparing you for that. So, all right. The other day I was having a chat with, with a friend of mine who was looking for a little bit of 
you know, a little capital from me, a little bit, a little bit of a loan to help them with a project. And I wanted a good proposal on this. I don't, I'm going to say, I want to know what the story is. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the person wrote to me and said, I can't deal with the uncertainty of not knowing if you're going to help me with this or not. And then I immediately wrote back and I go, that's the level of uncertainty you can't handle. Because let me tell you about the uncertainty that I am facing at the moment. I have a multi-million dollar publishing contract that I'm, you know, having this issue with over here. Plus I've got, and I just listed off some of the unbelievable uncertainties that I am facing in the world. I run a seminar company during a COVID pandemic. 50% of our revenues are from live events and they're all canceled. And this is the level of uncertainty you can't handle? Now, if I asked me of 20s to handle the uncertainty that I deal with on a daily basis, I'm afraid I would crumble, right? I would crumble. But thank God, I did handle a bunch of uncertainties in my 20s because that built in me the resilience to be able to handle the things that I'm dealing with now. The trouble, unfortunately, I see very often happening with young people today is that they recoil from the scary. They pull back from the frightening. Like I, I, I was talking to a, uh, I was talking to a young man about 19 or so years old, talking about fear and anxiety. And I said, "Well, look, in the video games, like when you play the video games, right? Like, don't you? If it got too easy, wouldn't you stop playing?" And he goes, "No." He goes, "I turn it down to the easiest level so I can just complete the whole game." Wow, we weren't able to do that when we were kids. Like, I, that, that, they didn't give us that option when I was a kid. You had to play the game, and unfortunately. That is what many people are doing these days is trying to take the easy option. And what they're not recognizing is, is that taking the easy option is like not going to the gym, which means you don't build the muscle, which means you can't lift the heavy stuff. Mm. There's my, I know you said short advice, but that's, <laughs> that's as short as it gets. <laughs> no, I love that. I love that. And like going through all that uncertainty right now with like your seminar company and all your businesses and everything that happened during COVID is there anything that's helped you stay grounded through all that uncertainty? Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that's really helped me is that recognition that everything that I've ever, well, part two, I told you, you're, you write down all the stuff you're worried about and then you cross off the stuff that didn't happen. But then part two is you take a look at the stuff that did happen. And then you ask yourself, how many of these things am I actually grateful for? Now they're over, right? I didn't like them at the time. They hurt. They were uncomfortable. They were scary. But now that they're over, thank God they happened. Like I got fired from that job or I got that person dumped me or that thing happened over there. Or I had this business bankruptcy. There's any number of things that are terrifying in the moment, right? But then you look back later, we, we actually in our workshops, we call that a, uh, uh, the hindsight window, the period of time between an adverse event and the eventual recognition or acceptance of that event as a sharp or flat note in the otherwise perfect symphony of your life. And what's crazy is the longer you live, the more you start to recognize the symphony and the more you start to go, oh, that's a sharp note. It's meant to be there. It's meant to be there. So, so for example, when COVID happened, when, when it all started, I was one of the crazy people. Like, I don't know if you remember this. I don't know what it was like for you, but like in January of last year, there was some noise about some virus in, in, in China and most people didn't even notice. By February, there was some discussion about it. But most people were still like, oh, it's just going to be like MERS or SARS or something like that. Just as, it'll just disappear, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. Not me. I was freaking out. I was in full freak out mode. I knew how bad it was going to be. I got on the phone with the president of our company and I said, cancel all the events. Like she, we had events in June and I was saying, and she goes, Eric, what do you mean cancel the events? And it's in June. Even the government's been talking about a maybe lockdown, but it's only going to be two weeks. Remember, that's what they told us. That's what they said. So I'm like, nope, it's going to be three years. I just said, this is going to be at least three years of major disruption. I said, I was, this is what I, like, I just saw it, but 
after I got over the initial panic phase and I made, well, then I started looking at, and that was only a few days. Then I started looking at this going, okay, but you know, what's going to happen is, is that some people are going to thrive their way through this. Some people are going to survive it and some people are going to crash. And what I want to do is I want to be one of the people that thrives. And I want to be one of the people that can help the people who crash. That, that's, that's what I want to do. And so I immediately started making shifts in the business. And I, I, what I did really is I recognized this as the next level of the game. I just, I just took a look and go, this is the next level of the game. Now, again, you know, I think a lot of people have seen this COVID thing as the most difficult and hardest thing in the whole history of the world and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, look, I was born in 1970. I grew up in a town called Halifax, Nova Scotia, Eastern Canada. At one point during the Cold War, there was a list of cities published, and it was the list of cities that the Soviets would hit first if there was a nuclear war. And we were number nine on the list. Like, we grew up believing that we could be vaporized in a moment. We just grew up with that. Like, that's just how we lived. And, and by the way, it was 10 times worse for the generation before me when we went through the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it was 10 times worse for the generation before them that we had to go through World War One or World War Two. Like, here's another way. Sophia, think about this. I'm 50... How old am I? 51. I'm 51. I had to think about that for a minute. The age is showing, right? So I'm 51 years old. If I was born in 1900, by the time I was 20 years old, I've been through the Spanish flu and World War I, and I'm running into the Great Depression. I'm headed right into the Great Depression. Then I survived the Great Depression. As soon as that's over, I'm, I'm barely into my 40s, and World War II begins. And as I get to my 51, I am three years away from the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was a tough generation, man. Like they, they, they went through some stuff. And I was looking at this going, you know, we've lived in the best, safest times in the history of ever. And this is scary, but it's the next level of video games. So if it was a game, how would I play it? And I realized the way I would play it is I would try to have the most fun. I would try to create the most value. And I would try to anticipate what's going on. And fortunately, we did a pretty good job of that. Wow. And from leaving that job, did you start a business right away? Or what was your journey like after leaving that job? So after that first client called me and, and I did that one deal with him, I was like, the only real option for me in my life right now, and, and by the way, this is, this is a really good case of irony. Uh, irony is a weird word in American English sometimes, ever since Alanis Morissette, I think. Isn't she Canadian? But anyway, the point is that the, the irony kind of gets twisted around. So just, just for everybody's listening, here's a great way to understand irony. I, I, I don't mean to be like condescending. Most of you probably know what irony is, but I just want to say it anyway. Ronald Reagan, president of the United States, Ronald Reagan was not shot. He was not shot. He was hit by a bullet that bounced off his bulletproof limousine. So, so that's irony. If his bulletproof limousine was not bulletproof to save him from being shot, then when the bullet hit the limousine, it wouldn't have bounced off and it wouldn't hit him. So that's irony, right? Well, in, in this situation, we are, we are dealing with, I want to approach this from another side. It's like when, when my boss didn't pay me the money, the reason he didn't pay me the money was he was afraid I was going to start a competitive company, oh. right? I was going to go to Grand Cayman, <laughs> like, like, but because he didn't pay me the money and I didn't have, I couldn't get a job. I couldn't go apply for a job because I wasn't legally allowed to work. When this guy called me and bought this equipment from me, I was like, I gave him the equipment. I made the profit. And I'm like, this is what I'm doing next. And so I, I, at that point, I formed, a, no kidding, a competitive company. Irony, my boss created the very thing that he was afraid of. And, and I got my hundred and whatever thousand dollars back again and again and again. And you asked earlier if I'd been studying sort of personal development and that kind of stuff, had mm -hmm. I been thinking about psychology and so on. Well, I mentioned that in my early 20s, my first real shit show of my 20s was feeling sick all the time and being overweight and being um, you know, in pain constantly on medication constantly. And a friend of mine talked me into going to a Tony Robbins seminar, which I thought was insane. I mean, what this, 
like, I'm going to spend like, what was it? $1,500 to spend three days in a room. Like I, I left, I don't, I didn't like school. Why would I do this? But among the things that I learned during that time, there were two core things really. One was I learned to turn my health around. And the other thing that I learned was to take responsibility for my existence. And so in the years right before I quit that job, I was actually publishing an e-zine, they called them back then, but basically an, an, an email-based magazine. And I started publishing it in 1994. And I don't know if you can, you know, in, in internet years, that's basically at the very beginning. Like very few people even had inter- email back then, but I did. And I started publishing this little magazine and sending it out by email. And I sent it to like eight or 10 friends on the first week. And then they sent it to a few different, because everybody loved email back then. We, you, we, we'd sit there and go, do I have mail? No. Do I have mail? No. It was like, that's how mail was back then. So I caught on that because everybody loved getting my message. And pretty soon I was, I had 70,000 subscribers in 70 countries around the world. It was incredible. Two years. But the easing, what it was about was that it was about personal development and, and psychology and philosophy. It was about life skills. And so every single week I had to write articles. I had to do a book review or a seminar review. I had to undertake. So basically for two full years, I was reading a book every single week and not just reading it. You know, there's a difference between reading a book and reading a book that you're going to have to write about. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was reading it because I had to write a review about it. I was going to a seminar because I had to write a review about it. And so it felt very much like I was working on, even though I didn't go to university, I was working on getting myself a, an arts degree in personal development. You know, I was, I was reading every week and writing every week. And I think that also was one of the reasons that when I did start that business, like one of the books that I reviewed while publishing this magazine was The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. And he talked a lot about entrepreneurship, obviously, in business and so forth. And so when I started my company, I decided to apply the things that I got from his book, from Stephen Covey, from Brian Tracy, from Tony Robbins, from Richard Branson, like the various books that I've been reading informed because I hadn't gone to business school. So like, what the hell did I know about starting a business? But what I decided to do is turn my life and my business into an experiment of all the theory that I've been writing about for the last two years. And, you know, in my case, it turned out to be pretty good theory. And have you always been like the type of person who you always want to search for the next level of the video game? You always want to figure out how you can level up or have you ever like manufactured those situations in your life? Or do you notice they just kind of come to you? I think a little bit of both. I have always been one to push my comfort levels. You know, I've, I've often been willing to push the edges of what is comfortable to me. I, I used to, be absolutely terrified of public speaking. And I forced myself to overcome that. Uh, you know, I was absolutely terrified about starting a business and I, and I forced myself to overcome that. And, and so I, I've typically seen, I mean, these days it's almost a cliched expression, but all your real personal growth is outside the comfort zone. And I think I've, I, as a child, I spent a lot of time out of there, not by choice, you know, going through alcoholism and divorces and all that stuff that happens to many of us as kids. And so a lot of the uncertainty that I faced as a child made me more comfortable with uncertainty than some of the people around me. And so I think that that got me like, I, here's an example at 18, I took a job and it was a sales job. And out of the blue, they offered me to relocate from Halifax, Nova Scotia to Victoria, BC, which is the equivalent of moving from London to Moscow in terms of geography. It's a huge distance. It's a way far away from all my friends and it's huge. And at 18, I just did it. I just flew myself across the country and started this new job in this new city. And, and, and I, so I tended to do the scary, I think, I mean, you know, even as a kid, I sold stuff in front of my house. I, I would go and shovel the sidewalks when the snow came. I would go rake the leaves when the leaves came. I was, and none of that stuff was easy for me. I, I would go and knock on the door and I'd be terrified fear that this person, like I would have two fears. Fear number one, that they wouldn't be there and they wouldn't answer the door and I wouldn't have a chance to sell them my slow snow clearing services at 10 years old. But fear number two is what they would answer the door. 
<laughs> and I would have to talk to them, right? So, so I think that partly it's been by design that I've been willing to push my comfort zones. And then, and then I think the other thing is, is that, you know, God or the universe or whatever, you know, whatever energies we believe in, life has a way of knowing what you can handle. And, and then sometimes serving you just past that because that's where the growth is. Just like you can't go to the gym and simply lift what you can lift. You got to go to the gym and lift just beyond what you can lift or lift what you can lift until you can't lift anymore. And I think sometimes you, the universe is very well, life is very well capable of giving us those things. But again, what a lot of people do is they recoil back from it. And I, um, I think that if we treated it a little bit more like a game, we would be more like game on, I'm going in. I'm, I'm going to play this level as best I can. I love that way of thinking about it, like a game. Yeah. Well, look, you know, for all we know, like I, this is a crazy idea, but I mean, there's all these creation stories. You know, of course, there's the whole God created the place in seven days. And then there's the whole, you know, total accident of science thing. But, you know, I'll tell you what's more plausible to me. Do you, do you remember, do you know the game Pong? I don't. Yeah, I see you won't. But all it was was like two little paddles on either side of the screen and a, a ball bouncing back and oh. forth. And that was kind of like the first video game. You've probably seen it, but you wouldn't have known what it was. And then then there's like Pac-Man, which I'm sure you're familiar yeah. with. And then then there's Space Invaders. And you see what's going on is the games are getting like better and better and better and better. Re- more real, more real, more real, more real. And we're now at the point where I was walking through an airport last year, two years ago, I guess now, and, and, I, and I saw this football game, soccer. I'm not a big fan of soccer myself, but, but I, I recognize that there are moments in soccer that are stunning. And, and I see this goal, it's stunning. And I think to myself, I hope they do a replay. And they did. And then they did another replay from another angle and another replay from another. And then they did a replay from the goalie view. And I'm like, how did they do that? So I walked a little closer to the screen and at 30 feet away, it was photorealistic. At 20 feet away, I could tell it was digital. But think about that compared to Pong. Now, technological advancements work on a graph, right? Like they, they work on, and so we are now in the steep edge of the graph, which means that, I was gonna say by the time you're my age, no, screw that. In about five or six years, we will have games that are indecipherable from real life. We will have games that you can immerse in that are so realistic that your nervous system fully responds as though it's a real thing. Like you will be able to skydive and feel as though you are actually skydiving. Now, if that's true, who's to say we're not already playing that game? You know, and I, I, who knows? I don't know. I'm just saying like, it doesn't seem to matter what the origin story is. What seems to matter is, is that this is a game and you know what we get points for? We get points for being happy. We get points for being contented. We get points for feeling good. That's what we get points for. And so- let's go get the points and when you're younger going back to when you're younger and going like door to door and selling and hoping that they open the door did you have sales skills when you were younger or was that something you knew innately or was that something you kind of just tested like let's see if I say this if they say yes or like what was that process like for you you know, I think it was a little bit of both. First thing is, I, I believe that everybody is a born natural communicator and they are, they're born that way. And I can prove it. You just, all you have to do is go on a plane and find the two-year-olds. None of them are afraid of public speaking. Not one of them. It is only after that point that they become afraid of it because of the pressure from the parents, the schools, the other adults, the life experience around them. And they start becoming socially conscious and they start developing the early stages of what might even become social anxiety, shyness, and, and fear of public speaking, that kind of stuff. And, and so I was like everybody on earth, I was born wanting to communicate effectively. And then I had it knocked out of me. I, I, you know, I grew up, I grew up with a a lot of turmoil in my, in my childhood. And I grew up with a a dad who is a 
truly great man and and is and a great father now today but there was this there was a space there with a little you know with the alcohol and all this kind of and and the, you know there were comments made that made me question myself constantly that made me not feel safe to speak and so i did go into a phase of being absolutely terrified to communicate and speak but something inside me drove past that so for example, even at 10 or 12, I would go out and knock on doors and sell snow shoveling services and stuff as terrifying as it was for me. What was more scary to me was realizing that my safety and security in the world was actually up to me, you know, and that's something I figured out like before my teens, I really got that if, if life was going to work for me, I was going to have to figure it out. And, and so I was, I did have those fears, but I, I did constantly seek to push through them. And then the sales stuff, well, you know, for me, it was just trial and error. Great example. I, Went to this guy's house, knocked on his door. I'm nine or 10 years old or so. And it's fall. So, and we're, we're Eastern Canada. So it's like New England, right? There's leaves everywhere. And I'm going to let the rake go leaves for everybody. And this one guy, he's like, never says yes, but I keep knocking on his door. Never says yes, but I keep knocking on the door. I don't give up. And finally he goes, all right, fine. I'll give you a try. So I go into his back garden and I've got, I brought my own garbage bags. You know, I'm, I'm professional. I'm raking up the leaves and I fill the bags and he comes out after I filled one bag, he comes out. He's an old guy. Like when I say old guy, when you're nine, he could have been, he might've been 30 or something. <laughs> I have no idea. He could have been 60. You know what it's like when you're a kid. Yeah. You know, everybody over 25 is old people. Right. So I don't know how old he was, but, but he, to me, he was an old guy and he got, and he, and he, and he says, he goes, he picks up the bag and he goes, you could fit a lot more leaves in that bag. And the thing is, is I was charging by the bag. Right. So what he was accusing me of is light filling the bags to make more money. And I really, I don't think I was intentionally doing that. I mean, I can't say for certain it's 40 years ago, but I don't feel like I was doing that. But when he said that to me, I felt shame come up, maybe shame because I, maybe there was a part of it that was true. And one thing I've learned about those, those emotions like shame is they're not bad emotions. Those are, those are some of the best emotions on earth. Those are the emotions that as long as you don't let them take over are the emotions that guide you the very, very best. Yeah, joy and, and bliss and, and cheerfulness. Those are really nice. Love, fabulous emotions. Nice. But guilt, regret, shame, those things are the ones that light the fire under you to potentially change as long as you don't drug them away with TV or drugs or alcohol or whatever, right? As long as you face them. And so as I'm standing there talking to this guy, I felt the shame come up. And I was like, the only way I can fix the shame is to acknowledge what he's saying, learn from it and fix it. And so I said, no problem. And I stuffed that bag full and I stuffed the second one full and I stuffed the third bag full. And now I had three big, heavy bags. Like they were stuffed full and he came out and he lifted every one of them and he goes, now that is a good day's work. And he paid me more than the three bags. You know, he, he gave me the money and you know, what's crazy. You might think that at that age, I'd be like, well, now from now onwards, when I serve that guy, I'm going to fill the bags all the way. Nope. I did it for every client. At that point, I'd learned a new idea about quality standards. And one of the most important things I would ever learn about sales, the most important thing you could ever learn about sales and marketing, in my opinion, is this, exceed their expectations, over-deliver. If you over-deliver, they will not only buy from you again, but they will tell the people around. You know, that guy, how many people did he tell that story to? That this guy, this kid comes and he fills the bags and he does a great job. Like that was my biggest lesson in sales. And then the next one, some, something similar. Remember what I said, like he would, he would answer the door. He would never buy from me. And then I went to a boarding school some years later and, and we sold honey. We made honey at the school and we sold honey to raise money for like kids sports, for our sports programs and stuff. And, you know, I, I, I was knocking on the doors and I remember the, uh, I went to the, to this one house and the woman goes like, you guys come here. This is like every weekend you guys are here. And I, I never buy from you. I don't, I don't eat honey. I never buy from you. Why should I buy from you? Why, what makes you different? And I just looked at her and I go, well, I'm kind of cute. And she busted out laughing 
and then invited me in for a hot chocolate and she bought a jar of honey from me, right? Like, I got it. Like, it, they're, they're, one of the things that people are looking for is to feel good. And if you can help them feel good, then you can create a great relationship with them. And that is the basis of being able to sell and market and influence and position yourself. doesn't matter if you're trying to sell a jar of honey to that lady or you're trying to raise money from a venture capitalist. There's something to that. I'm curious, do you have kids? I have two. I have a 20, holy, I have to be careful now, 23, <laughs> he might be 24. Oh God, I hope he doesn't watch this. 23-year-old and a four-year-old. Oh, do you have any exercises that you put them through to get those sales skills at a young age? Like, did you say, okay, go go outside, go knock on the neighbor's doors, go sell honey. Have you done any of those experiences? Not, not really. My, my son grew up largely with his mom in Canada when I was living in England. So we didn't get to spend a lot of day-to-day time with each other that same way where I might've been more, I might've done more of that kind of thing. But, but I tell you, rather than thinking about it in terms of specific exercises, I work to lay the foundation. So one of my principles in life, and it's a personal development principle and a parenting principle and a relationship principle, and it works like this. Any behavior that you reward will repeat itself. Any behavior that you reward will pre- repeat itself. So if you allow yourself to, if you're depressed and you eat chocolate to get to break your depression, well, that's actually a reward. So your body will learn to create depression to get to the chocolate. It, it's a horrible food trap that the food industry has us in. And, and so the same thing now, if you, have, if you have a friend or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a partner and they and they use tantrums to control you and you let them, then they will. <laughs> like, you know, so if somebody like, and you're like, okay, okay, you can have it your way. Then they save a little file in their head and goes, well, that's how I get my way. Everybody is always constantly, continuously trying to figure out how to get it their way. They're trying to get what they want out of the world, right? As a parent, I believe this is really important because you see, if you let your kids get stuff from you in dysfunctional ways, you are teaching them that dysfunctional ways work to get what they want, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and, and true of kids, it's true of everybody, but kids is so visceral. So my little girl, when she was about two and a half or so, you know, she likes to sit up on the kitchen counter and watch me cook. And she was sitting up there for a while. And I thought, you know what? She probably could use a glass of juice. She doesn't drink juice very often because it's, it's fresh squeezed pineapple juice watered down 50-50. It's not a lot of sugar, but we just tend to, you know, but every now and again, I'm going to, so I'm going to get her one. And I'm walking, I'm walking over to the fridge and I don't know what, I guess maybe she saw me walking in the fridge, something, but she goes, I want pineapple juice. And I went, oh no. And she's like, what? And I go, well, now I can't get you one. Why not? Well, because that doesn't work. That doesn't work. That, that doesn't work anywhere. It doesn't work anywhere. You can't get a raise like that. You can't raise money from a venture capitalist. I talk to her like this. Like I, I say these things to her. You know, you, you can't sell anything that way. You, you can't get what you want out of life that way. I said, there's a few people in your life that might let you get what you want that way. Use that on them, but it won't work on me and it won't work on the majority of people. And she's like, and I go, can you think of a better way to ask for the juice? And she goes, and she, no kidding. She sits up, she goes, daddy, can I please have some juice? Yes, you can. And, and you know, and, and I, I know this seems like a really simple thing, but what I'm saying is, is that when your kids or your friends or your partner or your employees or anybody or your boss wants something from you, give it to them when they ask for it in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. And don't give it to them when they are using force, violence, manipulation, negativity, etc. cetera. Yeah. Well, and also like, I noticed like a theme between entrepreneurs is they usually have some type of adversity when they're younger. There's usually some sort of like background story, some sort of thing that kind of created their businesses, something that kind of inspired them to do that. 
do you think entrepreneurs need to go through some type of adversary in order to create their business? Or you think that's just a common theme as some of them? I, I think it's, it, I think it's a common theme because we particularly, particularly influenced by American culture, we really like underdogs, right? So mm-hmm. whenever we hear about somebody who, you know, had this horrible thing happen to them when they were a child, and then they turned it into something great. We like underdog stories. I look, check, check it out. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but every superhero you've ever heard of is an orphan. Every one of them is an orphan. Why? Well, because we we want the underdog, right? They they all they have to be orphans. It's just the way it is. And so we 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 really like that. And so that way, those entrepreneur stories are much more likely um, to come out. But I think there's another side to it, and that is that you know if you have a really easy time in high school, you're you're you got a tough life coming ahead of you. You know, I really think so. If, if you aren't tested in some ways, if, if you don't run into stuff, if you don't build those emotional muscles, if you don't build those skills, you know, it's funny, like I, I bumped into this guy that I went to high school with and we, we were in our mid twenties. We hadn't seen each other in years. I didn't know him. Cause he was like, you know, he, I, I knew him. He was the captain of the football team. He was super good looking. He drove a beautiful convertible Jeep because his parents were loaded. Like he had the ultimate high school. If any of us were, if you had to go back to high school now, you'd want to go back in his life. Like he had it, go, he had it all going on. Right. And um, in high school, I, I, I drove, a mini that had a very special kind of air conditioning. It was the kind of air conditioning where you could see the road below your feet through the holes in the floor, right? Like that, it, that, like that was me in high school and this guy. And, but then not that many years later, 25 years old, I moved back to my hometown, Halifax, and I, I get there and I bump into him. And, um, and you know, we're, we're just, and he recognized me, which blew me away because we didn't even know each other really in high school, I thought. And um, but he recognized me walking down the mall, and he's like, "Oh, Eric, you're, you're back in Halifax." He's like, "A, he recognized me. B, he knew I was gone. Right? I'm weird." But then as we started talking, he's like, "You know, do you know anybody? You know, does your company have any jobs going? Do you, you know?" And he's dealing at 25 years old with being lost and 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 what have you. And I think it's because possibly, and you know, maybe by now he's got it all turned around. I I imagine he does. He had great parents and what have you. But if if you aren't challenged enough, I think in your high school years, then I think you're going to find your twenties even harder. And, and I, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is you don't have to, if, if somebody hasn't gone through tremendous trauma, they shouldn't think to themselves, well, now I can't be an entrepreneur. But I think if somebody has gone through a lot of difficulty trauma, what they should recognize is that that probably gave them some skills, some coping skills, some superpowers to do, to, to be able to do stuff. And so either way is a good path. I, I, I think that the, the big skill to recognize is to try to develop resilience, either because your, your childhood prepared you for resilience or because you're consciously working on it. And if there's anything, would you do anything different in your first business? Is there anything you would change about your first business or would you do it the exact same way that you did it? You know, it's, it's kind of a loaded question. There's a sort of weird sci-fi side to it. If I changed any single thing that I did in my business, I wouldn't be where I am today. I'd be somewhere else. I wouldn't have the partner I have today. I wouldn't have the children I have today. Like everything about my life, every, everything that I, that I love and enjoy about my life is because of me doing it the way I did it. So, So, you know, of course, what I know, look, my very first company, I started it with very little money, as you know, as, as I told you, and, and I grew it organically. I reinvested heavily. I went through serious fears and cash flow problem, nearly lost the business a few times, and then eventually sold it and retired from the IT sector wealthy. Now, when I started my next business, it was very similar business, but in a very different industry. But the difference was, is that the first time it took me six years before I didn't have to go to work anymore. After six years, going to work was optional. My business ran smoothly. I didn't need to be there. I could, I could disappear for months at a time if I wanted to. With the next business I started, it took me only 18 months to do that. 
So if you said to me, would I do things differently? Well, yeah, if I had to live my life completely all over again, I wouldn't be able to help myself, but make wiser decisions and be smarter about the type of people I chose to have around me in my life and all that kind of stuff. But, but check it out. If I did that back then, I would have saved myself a bunch of pain and suffering. And I would have saved myself from going through some of the heartbreaks and ripoffs and things that I went through, which here, here's a good example. In my business, I one day hired a manager to run the company because I no longer wanted to manage the business anymore. And it turned out that he was working with a group of people that were, wanted to buy my company from me. He didn't tell them this until the very end, but he was trying to sabotage the business in order for them to buy it at a lower price. I mean, it was disgusting. By the way, it didn't work because the business was robust and it worked, but he tried to do that. It was very heartbreaking for me. He took one of my top salespeople. When, when, once I caught him, I let him go and he took one of my top salespeople and he really hurt me. Like it was like, I put a lot of trust in him. He hurt me. Well, many years later, I would go on a tour of the original Industrial Light and Magic Studios. Uh, that's the, you know, that's the home of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Pirates of the Caribbean. It's where, where, where the, the practical special effects for those movies were made. And I ended up buying, investing in the business and buying it. And one of the partners that was involved in the transaction had previously been facing an indictment by the state of California that carried a 493-year jail sentence. And over the next year, a few years, I spent my time uh, you know, facing the reality that I've invested all of my money in this thing and it was gone and, and facing lawsuits left and right from stuff that I never did. It was really difficult. Like It was meltdown difficult. But I would say that if I hadn't gone through that stuff in my first business, I might not have been able to handle that. So no, I wouldn't go back and do anything differently. I, the only thing I would say when people say like, you know, what would you go back and tell your 19 year old self? I, I wouldn't even want to, but, it, but if you want me to tell me what to tell a 19 year old today, here's what I would tell him. Stop worrying about stuff. Stop, stop worrying about stuff and just move on. Just understand that life is always and consistently happening for you, especially when it doesn't feel like it is. And everything is an opportunity to level up. And you just, you, you, you take the cards you're dealt and you play and you play and you play and you play and you don't sit and worry about every single decision. Cause here's the crazy thing. Should I get married or not? Should I have a baby or not? Should I start a business or not? Should I take the loan or not? Should I get the VC or not? Should I, you know, here's a joke. Whatever you choose, you will never know if it was the right call. You will never know that. You will never, never know because Whatever happens, good or bad, you will never know what would have happened the other way. You can make it up. You can fantasize about it. You can compare these two fantasy possibilities. But once you've made a decision, you've truly chosen a different universe to live in, and you will never know what the other universe looked like. So you'll never know. So since you'll never know, you may as well just choose the thing that looks like the most fun and the most rewarding and go with it. Mm-hmm. And did you always have this ability to like, now you're like stepping on huge stages, you're speaking all over the world. Is there... Have you always had this ability to turn that on or how were you able to cultivate your voice and cultivate these speaking events over time? I kind of have to give you three answers. I would say yes, no, yes. And what I mean by that is that if you asked my parents, they would tell you that I was an exuberant child and I like to tell stories and, you know, and I was, I was a chatterbox. I would talk all the time. But if you were to ask me, you would find that by the time I got to the age of 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, I was so terrified of people and, and public speaking and that kind of stuff that I could be a chatterbox, but only around people that I knew. And, and the minute I walked into a room with more than two or three people, I felt social anxiety. I felt really like afraid. And by the way, my, my, I was terrified of women. So if I walked into a room with three people and one of them was an attractive woman, I literally couldn't talk. Like it was, I, I really went through a period of time where I know I couldn't just turn it on. It was really difficult for me. And then what happened was I, I discovered a few things in the space of nutrition. I had discovered some concepts in nutrition that I felt needed to get out to the world and they were huge. 
And I was like, no, no, I have to get this out to the world. And it is selfish of me to hold back what I know because of my fear of rejection. And so as a consequence of that, I started going to like Toastmasters meetings and I, I started reading about public speaking. I started watching speeches whenever I could get a video. Back then there was no YouTube. So I had to like work at that. And I just worked on it. I, I probably attended $100,000 worth of courses on public speaking. And, and then I started practicing like you wouldn't believe. And I've probably logged over 10,000 hours in presentation mode on stage. And, and I love it. And I, I love it because... I love both the experience of giving people pleasure in the moment, but I also love the experience of leaving them with a lasting impression, with leaving them with real transformation so that they, so that they can have a, a better quality of life. And I, I really like doing that because people took the time to do it for me. I, I thank God that Jim Rohn and Tony Robbins and, and uh, Wayne Dyer and, and these people took the time to write these new age personal development philosophical books and, and share their wisdom because I... I know my quality of life today comes from that foundation. And so I love paying that forward today. And what are some key elements you think, or you find, or you see of like a really powerful speaker? Storytelling is absolutely key. There's a very big difference between lecturing and storytelling. And so when somebody lectures, they force the audience to pay attention right? Like it, it, the price is too big. If, if you are lecturing, then, then, then the people have to pay attention. And so the way you earn that is by telling stories that make the point for you and then doing a very short lecture that makes the point from the story or vice versa. You do a very short lecture and then you tell a story to hammer it in. I, I was very blessed. I mean, most people that I talked to had one or two compelling teachers in their 12 years of school, like if they're lucky. I was very lucky. I had six or seven of them. My first one being in grade three and, and many then through my junior high school and high school experiences. And I had really compelling teachers. I remember one day, uh, Mr. Jackson was the headmaster of our school and he was the his- history teacher. And he came in and he made us all line our desks up like we were in canoes. And we did a lot of canoeing at our school, like our year, our grade nine year end celebration trip was a 900 mile canoe trip through Northern Canada. Like I'm not talking this YMCA weekend crap, right? We're talking serious, n- not to diss the YMCA. That's good stuff too. But just, you know, we're talking the full meal deal here. And so we, we, uh, he made us put our desks in a row and then he made us paddle like we were paddling, you know, stroke, stroke, stroke. And he goes, now I want you to think about how this would feel. You're in this canoe, you're paddling down a river that there is no map for. All you know is that in about 300 meters, the river turns right. You don't know if there's white water there. You don't know if there's a waterfall. You don't know if there's bears you don't know if there's native Canadians. You don't know anything about where you're going. You're heading into the wildest wilderness ever. Stroke, stroke. The trees are going by you, voom, voom. But then the water starts to accelerate a little bit. And the trees are going faster, voom, 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 voom. You must be heading toward the white water. It's just around the river. Do you pull over to the bank and check it out first? Or do you just brave it not knowing what's there? That's what those people went through. And any teacher that does not, any history teacher that does not take you there, that doesn't take you to the moment and let you feel it, shouldn't be teaching history. Equally, any chemistry teacher that doesn't take you back to the earliest discoveries of chemistry and help you feel like you were in the lab when they were made. You know, any, any physics teacher that doesn't take you back to the original gold foil experiments that demonstrated that atoms were mostly empty space. If they don't take you to that room and make you feel like you're in the room, then they shouldn't be teaching. And that, that is the key, I think, to truly compelling public speaking is the ability to transport people to another time and place so that they can create a memory as if they were almost there. And what, what was it like for you to be able to tour with Tony Robbins? What was that experience like for you? And how did that great. opportunity come up also? Like, 
It, it was great. I, you know, I started listening to Tony Robbins on, uh, Sophia, do you know what tapes are? Tapes. Yeah. You know, tapes. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but I started listening to Tony on tapes and I saw him do a live event when I was about, you know, 22 years old or something like that. And he'd already had a big impact on me. And then we met a couple times, like at events, you know, we met, I went for a run with, on the beach with him for, for a video they were shooting once and we got to have a chat, you know, but it's like, he would never remember, you know, whatever, just a little chat. But then what happened was a very good friend of mine, a guy named Chet Holmes wrote a phenomenal book called the ultimate sales machine. And Chet and I met at an event and we just hit it off. And Chet ended up going into a partnership with Tony Robbins. And um, sadly, Chet got cancer and he got sick. And as he was recovering, um, they booked him to speak at an event because he'd beaten the cancer, but he hadn't beaten the treatment. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes the treatment in these, you know, can, can be even as bad as the disease or worse. And so he passed away. And I, uh, it, was a, it was a pretty big moment for me. It was the first, you know, we all have that, if you haven't had one yet, but we all have it. There's that first death in adulthood that really like hits you. And that, that, was, that was one of them for me. And um, I got home having just found out that he died and my phone rang at the house and nobody had my home number. Like, I, you know, and, and, and um, it was a guy who worked for Tony and he said, listen, uh, can you come and speak at this event? And I'm like, I'm not even a speaker. I haven't been on stage anywhere for three years. I'm just, and he goes, yeah, but you know, Chet always spoke really highly of you. And he, and he said, he really felt like you could, could teach his material really well. And I don't know what made me do it. I should have said no. I mean, it was basically like, it was like somebody called me up and said, hey, Eric, can you come race F1 sports cars this weekend? I should have said, can we start with go-karts first? You know, can we just, could we start there and then work our way up? But I just said, no, we'll just go straight for the F1. And I showed up in Fiji and, and met Tony properly for the first time. And we just hit it off. We just hit it off right away. One of the reasons we hit it off, frankly, is he came up to me and he's like, he, he, he came up to me and he's like, how are you feeling about your presentation? And I'm like, well... 11 days notice. You want me to use Chet slides. It, it's not ideal. And he goes, well, you could be a lot more confident. And uh, you know, one of the things that Tony teaches is that you should meet people where they are. Like nobody in the history of calming down has ever calmed down because somebody told him to calm down. Like you, you, Tony, calm down. That, 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 that doesn't work. He always talks about getting rapport. So I thought, well, shit, I'm in now. I'm all the way. I've flown here. What are they going to do? Kick me out? Like I, so he goes, well, you could be a lot more confident. I go, oh, don't you worry. I'm plenty confident. You see, the reason I'm here and none of your other speakers are here is they're all business operators and I'm a business owner. My business works for me. So the talk might not be exactly what you're expecting, but it's going to be fantastic. And he goes, well, all right then. <laughs> and that's it. We just, we hit it off. And I spent the next uh, you know, year traveling around and speaking at his, you know, at, at his business mastery events and, and traveling, you know, going back and forth between Fiji a few times. It was really, really, and he was very sweet to me. Like he really, I, I'll never forget the day after my very first talk that I did for him, he invited me about two days later, he invited me over to his house for lunch. And I thought it was going to be one of these, like, you know, 15 minutes, like come in, have your 15 minute lunch. Like, you know, it's just, we, we, we were there. It was my, my wife at the time, myself, Sage, Tony, we sat there for four hours, four and a half hours. And we had lunch and it was so fun. But for the first part of the lunch, he was so effusive. He's like, Eric, I love the way you started your presentation. You did that. And the way you told that story and your use of the stage. And, and he, and he just kept going on like this and it was going on. And I couldn't take anymore. I, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't like, I couldn't even hear it anymore. And I finally went, Tony, I said, thank you. I, I appreciate the praise. I, I really do. I just can't, I can't take anymore. I said, but what I could take is, could you tell me how to make it even better? And his eyes went, and he goes, yeah. And he took my journal and he just started giving me all these notes and started coaching me. And I, I got it like, like, 
nobody gets coached on public speaking by Tony Robbins. So I was very, very fortunate. And he really took me under his wing. And I would, I would say that, you know, one day I'm going to have to create the list of the top influencers in my life. But uh, if there was a top five, there's absolutely no question he's in there in terms of having a major, major impact, not only on my life, but on the, on the hundreds of thousands of people that I've been able to impact. It's, it's just a ripple effect. And what was your biggest takeaway from Tony? Wow. You know, there's so many, I think that one of the biggest things that I got from him, for me personally, actually, was, you know, he has done such a great job of building his brand and building himself into a, a huge identity, but he also trapped himself inside his business to a degree. I remember we were having a conversation once and he told me uh, that his insurance company wouldn't let him fly helicopters anymore because he was too crucial to the business if something happened to Tony. And so while there are many, many great things that I've learned that Tony taught me and showed me and demonstrated to me, one of the greatest lessons I learned was not to make that mistake. And so when I built WildFit and when I built Business Freedom and Speaker Nation, I built those brands to be separate from me. And so anybody who knows the brands well knows that I'm involved. But I, like, I'll tell you, I was having lunch in this cafe called the Wild Food Cafe in, uh, in London. And I was having lunch and the owner of the restaurant's a buddy of mine. And when he saw that I was there, he's like, oh my God, I've got all these people I want to meet, uh, introduce you to. So he sent a bunch of texts and people just descended on it. And we just had this really like totally cool impromptu mastermind. And one of the guys at the mastermind was a, is a very prominent chiropractor. His name's David Thunder. And uh, by the way, I think he's also done chiropractic work for Tony and he's like, he's a top level chiropractor. And so he, he, he and I were talking and he, he started telling me about these clients of his that went through this health protocol. And he's like, yeah, my, my clients, they went through this, this incredible health protocol. And, and he said their names and I, I, I recognize the first names, but whatever, they, you know, just cause they're the same first names as a couple I know doesn't mean it's the same people, but then he goes, but you know, when they used to come into my office, it would take about 45 minutes to loosen them up and make the adjustments happen. They were very you know, stiff and there was a lot of inflammation. And he said, then they went through this incredible thing and their inflammation is gone and their adjustments take 15 minutes. I can walk in tick, 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 and they're done. And I'm like, uh, yeah, that's amazing. What did they do? And I'm expecting it's some like blood transfusion, oxidization, chemical machine. I don't know what it was. The way he talked about it, it was like magical. And then he's like, yeah, it's this thing called Wildfit. Do you know it? And I'm like, well, yeah, I might. I might, I might be the founder of that company. <laughs> we busted out laughing. But, but I did that largely because I watched what happened with Tony and I admire what he did and I admire the sacrifice that he made to do it because the fact is he can't walk down a street, right? He just, he can't walk down a street without people running up. And they, it's a different kind of celebrity, right? Like somebody sees Tom Cruise, they, 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 they kind of look from a distance and they might take a picture or something. But when Tony walks down the street, they, they run up, they feel like they know him and he's given, that, he's given up his privacy for the impact he wants to have on the world. And I just looked at it and I thought, you know, I, I will maybe want to do that a little bit differently. And so I built those brands to be, and by the way, to this day, Wildfit, if something happened to me or I decided to retire from it or whatever, it, 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 it will definitely survive me. It is a business. It's a brand that can, that can operate without me. And I, and I think that I, I, I hate to use an example of what not to do is one of the biggest things that he taught me, but it's only because he taught me so much of what to do right, that that lesson meant so much to me. And how have you been able to do that? How have you been able to separate yourself from your companies? I have to say, I have found it a lot harder this time around. And the reason is that my first few businesses, like my first business was mobile computing, wireless networking. That was super easy. I, all I did was systemize and proceduralize from day one. From the very first day I was processing orders, 
I, I, I was creating templates. And so that way, when I hired staff, they would use the exact same templates. Like I started that way from day one, from day one, any activity that was going to happen more than once was documented. Any form that was going to be used more than once was saved as a template. Any letter that was going to be sent more than once was saved as a template. And, and so what that meant was by about four or five years, when I wanted to train somebody, it was so easy to train them. I would just bring them in and go, here are the procedures you have to know. And here are the documents you need. They don't have to make anything up. Like, it, you know, so it was very easy for me in my first business and in subsequent businesses. But when I made the decision to become a teacher, when I made the decision to, to stand on stage and to stand in front of the camera, I, I did something different. I became the product. And that I did find, I, I have found it much harder to let go of things because you see in my old company, if somebody got something wrong on the landing page, if they, you know, they made a mistake, I, I, I could go, okay, we go fix the mistake. But now if they make a mistake on the landing page, I feel like it reflects on me personally. And so I feel I have a higher degree of emotion about that. It's been a very interesting exercise for me, but the principles are still the same. You know, a proceduralized document templatize everything. B, don't do jobs that you hate for very long. Like if you, if you're in your company and you're doing something that you hate to do, then you should immediately, like, this is the exercise I give people, write yourself a resignation letter. Dear me, I quit. You can take this job and shove it. I'm done. You have six months to replace me. In the meantime, I will document it and proceduralize it. So you can replace me, but that's it. Now this may seem like a silly exercise, but you know, a lot of people said, Keanu Reeves writing himself a check for $10 million was a silly exercise. Well, he cashed that check. Wait, you know what? When you write that letter of resignation to yourself, it puts a clock in your head that says, I got six months to get out of this job. And what's amazing is, is that when you feel trapped in a job you hate, like for me, accounting, for example, if you feel trapped doing your own accounting work and you, and you don't, and there's no end in sight, you do it badly, you procrastinate it, then you rush it and you get it wrong. And, and you don't proceduralize it because you don't want to spend any extra moments on it. But the minute you go, you know what? I'm going to be done with this in six months. You work at it a little harder. You put a little more effort into it. You get it right. You document it. You proceduralize it because there's light at the end of the tunnel. And now when you're ready to hire that person, you hand them the book on how to do your accounting. This is how we create invoices. This is how we collect our debts. This is, you know, it, that is huge. That is absolutely huge. No, it is not doing the jobs that you dislike. And one more thing about this. There's all this talk about like law of attraction, whatever, whatever, crystal wearing, incense burning. We can do all that stuff too, but I will make it very simple. You and I, and every human being, everybody listening right now, you are at your highest degree of attractiveness when you are in enjoyment. You are in your highest degree of attractiveness when you are in enjoyment, when you are doing things that you like, that you enjoy, that you have passion for, that you're fulfilled about, that's when you're at your most attractive. So if you have a job and you're spending 50% of your time doing stuff you hate, then 50% of your time, you have repulsive energy. You are pushing opportunities away. You are pushing people away. You're pushing money away. If you can spend 99% of your time doing what you really love, then you are attracting. You're attracting people and opportunities, investors, and all that stuff to you. And so as an example, let's say you have two tasks you have to do. One you hate, it's four hours. One you love, that's four hours. Normally, I would tell you, you got to do the one you hate first. And the reason is, if you do the one you love first, it will take a lot longer than four hours because you like it and you, and, and you know the one that's coming next is shitty. So you're gonna, you'll, you'll, you'll turn your four-hour good job into an eight-hour job. If you switch them around and you do the shitty job first, you'll get it done in three hours because you're rewarding yourself with something you love. The only time you change that is let's imagine you have a really important interview with the bank, with an investor, or you're trying to hire somebody or a new partner, and they're coming at lunchtime. Then that's the day you work on what you love all morning long because then your vibration will be better in the meeting. If you work on crap you hate, then that ectoplasmic sludge you know, that's on you, that vibrational sludge that's on you from doing things you hate will spill into the meeting and it will be repulsive. Mm -hmm. And what's something you're really excited about right now? 
you know, I, I gotta say so much. I, I, um, I'm working on a book at the moment that I am I, I, I am so passionate about and, and I'm just enjoying the, the discovery of it and the flow of it so very much. And it's sort of informing everything that I'm doing. I, I'm very excited about the work that we do at Wildfit. You know, there doesn't, there's not a day that goes by that I don't get letters from people that have, you know, reversed their diabetes, uh, they've lost their 20, 30 pounds that have been stuck with them for 30 years that, or, or a, a huge one lately is a lot of young people are coming along going, you know what? I was already starting to gain weight or I was already starting to worry about my relationship with sugar. And now I've got it handled that those, those emails literally every day that I get from people or, and people flood my social with these comments about how I've like saved their life and stuff. And I don't, I, I don't take that for granted ever, ever. I, I cannot believe that I have created a life where I get to play, get paid for playing and people around me upgrade their lives as a result. Like I, I, I just, I'm, I'm very fortunate. And if you were to go back in time and talk to your 20 year old self, what advice would you give him? Well, I think I think I mentioned this earlier. I think that the, the you know there's a two part answer. One, none. Go live your life. Just go do it. I don't want to interfere with every anything because I, you know I, I'm very I, I love how it's turning out and I and I I don't want to save myself any pain and adversity that I I just I you know I I'd be tempted to go oh don't do that deal because you'll get hurt yeah but that hurt led to this thing like why would you do that I'll give you a great example I I met this guy I worked with him for a long time. And he ended up being a bit of a scammer and, and it hurt and it was difficult and what have you. But as a result of him, I met all kinds of people, including Chet Holmes, who introduced me to Tony Robbins, right? And then at the same time, that's one of the reasons. Uh, then I also bought that movie studio and it was ripped off and I lost my life savings by doing that. But at the same time, I got to work on these incredible movies. I moved to Marin County. In Marin County, I became really good friends with some of the people that are my deepest, most amazing friends today. Those two people, those two groups of people hurt me badly. And I might be tempted to go back and tell the 20 year old, watch out for that guy. He's totally gonna rip you off. But the life I'm living today is the product of those things. So I wouldn't want to go back and warn myself or optimize myself. I'd want to just, the only thing I might want to do is just say, don't worry so much about it. Just enjoy it. Play it like a game. Have fun with it. Thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome. I, I, when I saw the name of it, um, you know, I, my, my team, we're, we're always like quite selective about where I can put my time when we're doing these things. But when I saw the name of it and I thought, you know what, didn't I say it earlier? One of the reasons I do what I do is because when I was in my twenties, people had taken the time to write books and do tapes and do programs that helped me so much. And so, uh, when I saw the name of yours, I'm like, I'm, uh, you got me. I'm in. <laughs> I'm so glad. And where can we find you online? You know, the best thing is come find me on Instagram. I, I actually manage my own Instagram. I, I still do that. And I, I really do my best to answer people when they write to me and, and that sort of stuff. And I, 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 I like to drop little life hacks and that sort of thing in there. So Instagram is a great place to find me. If you have specific questions, like if somebody does want to take a look at their relationship with food and learn about nutrition and food psychology, they should go to getwildfit.com. If somebody's interested in entrepreneurship and learning about business, they can go to businessfreedom.com. And if anybody wants to become a more effective communicator, like better on camera or better in front of an audience and learn how to write speeches and deliver them and storytelling and that kind of stuff, go to speakernation.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. I love if you can leave me a review on iTunes. Please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.